Leadership transition in nonprofits, NGOs, and philanthropies can be a tricky, high-risk moment in an organization's life. A lot can go wrong. People's ego, the psychology of impending organizational change, and the uncertainties that come with that. Whether to be available after one's departure, but not too available. The list goes on and on. If not done well, leadership transitions can depress morale, harm organizational reputation, and a whole set of other ramifications. So leaders need to be very intentional about it and show high self-awareness and emotional intelligence, while organizations need time to prepare themselves. Enough time, but also not too much time. A high-wire balancing act. Ignacio Saiz, who left the Center for Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, set out to be disintentional when he left after a tenure of 12 years. Here are just two of his quotes. Quote, Boards need to realize top leadership transition involves more than a recruitment. And planned leadership transition should be seen as a shared opportunity, not a cause for concern. So now you know you're in for a treat. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, investing cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, listeners. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. Leadership transition, particularly that of executive leaders, is a tricky and kind of a high-risk stage in the life cycle of a nonprofit, an NGO, or a philanthropy. Not only is the choice of a successor high stakes, especially if the concerns of founder, but even uh, equally, or at least also often in more general terms. In fact, I once read a statistic that for more than 40% of incoming leaders, this is in the U.S., after a founder steps off, um, their tenure is no more than two to three years uh, on average. And this is obviously very expensive for nonprofits. And moreover, one fraught often with emotions as well. Transitions in leadership within nonprofit organizations are complex. They depend on a lot of things which we're going to talk about in this, um, in this episode. So how do we orchestrate the handover in such a way that the NGO is well set up to transition into new leadership? Ignacio Saiz, an NGO leader, now turned consultant, so no longer an NGO executive director, 
has thought deeply about this and has recently practiced it in his own former INGO. And he's here to tell us. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, Tosca. I'm looking forward to this. So a quick bio on Ignacio. He um, is currently um, a full-time consultant and senior advisor on human rights, economic justice, and strategic leadership, and has been for the last almost two years now, right? About a year and a half, yeah. A year and a half, right. He was, importantly, for 15 and a half years at the Center for Economic and Social Rights, and we'll learn about that in a moment. And of those 15 and a half years, for 12 years, he was the executive director and before that, three years as research director. He has also held various managerial and leadership roles at Amnesty International, including director of policy programs, deputy director for the Americas, and several other roles. So, Ignacio, let's start with the basics. Tell us a little bit about the the Center sorry, for Economic and Social Rights, because when you and I, this is a long time ago, worked with each other, that was kind of a, um, um, uh, an organization in a fairly new subsector. What is it about? And then finally, when did you step off? Sure. Thank you, Tosca. Um, so the Center for Economic and Social Rights is an international organization, an international NGO, that works to harness the power of human rights to bring about fairer and more sustainable economies. What that means in practice is that um, the organization carries out research, advocacy, um, skills sharing and capacity building on how human rights tools, human rights uh, instruments, human rights norms, human rights mechanisms can be used in practice to challenge unfair economic policies. So austerity measures that, for example, um, have a have an effect in weakening public services or tax policies that widen the gap between the rich and the poor or development paradigms that are um, don't bring about more transformative changes in the economy. So these are the kinds of issues that the center works on. It, right, right. The and equalization back- between the nexus of human rights and development or economic justice. Exactly. And that's what I, not that that is the topic of this episode, it's not, but just Mm -hmm. to point out that the the center was a relatively, was a representative of back then, 50 to 20 years ago, new kind of kind of human rights work on the economic and social rights and not just on individual political and legal rights, which is what many people would think about at that time, right? And you stepped off. Are you you left that role of executive director when? I left uh, in March of last year, so March 2022. Okay, okay. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the the kind of the context, the the broader circumstances in which you transitioned out of that role. Is there anything about that context since we're going to dive deep into leadership transitioning out and how to do that um, that we should know as listeners? Sure. Um, my role as executive director of the center is a role that I will always treasure. I, I learned so much. I worked with the most amazing people. Um, it was a continual source of learning. I never tired of the role. Um, the reason I left, um, I always felt, and I still feel as a matter of principle that, um, human rights organizations 
kind of need to model the values that they espouse externally. And yeah. one of those values is around, you know, how long you should stick around as a leader of an organization. Mm-hmm. I firmly believed that, you know, it would not be good for me or for the organization to be the head of the organization for longer than 10 years. They, that's something of an arbitrary, you know, cap. But I had that very present in my mind. The only reason that 10 years became 12 years was because of the pandemic. Just just as I was ready to leave, the pandemic happened. And that's, you know, for obvious reasons, not the time to be, you know, that that's a time for stability and continuity, uh, not a time for for radical change. Um but I, I I really felt that it was uh, important for my own professional development and for the development of of the of organizational leadership um, for for me to honor that commitment. Mm. Uh, and a number of you know a, a number of conditions I felt had to be in place, or I wanted a number of conditions to be in place for mm. me to make that move. Um, and I I can talk about that if, if a little bit or yeah do you want to maybe give us a a quick high level overview oh. and then i suspect that we'll we'll go into that also just to before you do, just to point out i'm so glad that you had that value because it is my anecdotal perception in the sector that there are still too many leaders mm. who do not leave um on time and it it can really um Temper and organizations. So I'm I'm glad you had that. But tell us a little bit more about other circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I, I would point to three things that I that I felt um enabled me to say, okay, this is not a bad time to leave. This is not a disruptive. I don't think that there's ever an ideal time to leave, yeah. you know. And leaders are always going to say, oh no, but I can't leave now because this is going on. There's always something. There's yeah. already something that will that you can convince yourself needs you to delay your decision. But it, yeah, easily. Yeah, but in my in my case, there were kind of three fundamentals. I would say um, we had a healthy, a relatively healthy board um, culture. You know, the, the the board, the 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 chair of the board had been in place for a while. There was, um, you know, a, de- a degree of stability on the board, of experience on the board, because you need you need a healthy board. Yeah. Uh, at a moment of leadership transition it's it's, true that's probably the most important in some ways because they have to of course uh, recruit your successor absolutely so you need stability there when there's going to be a degree of instability at the starting level um secondly we had a strong leadership team um at the staff level, which I thought was also very important and and a great degree of buy-in from my colleagues on the leadership team to to a planned transition. I mean, this okay. was a situation where I I had decided to leave independently of, uh, you know, getting another job. This, so this mm-hmm. this this wasn't a a sudden. Oh, I'm leaving because I'm you know I'm I'm going to move on to another organization. So we had the luxury in a way of a planned transition. Yeah, uh, I actually gave nine months notice. Um, so it was okay. a very carefully planned transition, and the leadership team felt a strong buy-in you know we were able to um to 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 discuss and plan together um elements of the transition obviously not the recruitment of my successor but broader elements of the transition itself and i think a third a third factor was um we were we had just laid the foundations for a new strategy and this was also informed by the experience of the pandemic mm-hmm. And 
that that also felt like a good time to leave. You know, I, I feel I've contributed to the strategic process. The, there's a great degree of organizational buy-in at the staff level and at the board level in this new vision. I don't need to be around to implement it or to to put it in place. You know, and so it just felt a good moment in the strategic cycle of the organization. Yeah. So. Just uh, just a quick comment, there. and there are two sides to this, as there are yeah. to so many other things. Some consultants and coaches for leaders for leadership on leadership transition would argue actually the opposite. They would say, leave it to a new incoming leader to help shape that next strategy, right? But your argument is equally valid in my mind. It all, namely, let's have a good strategy. We're clear on that. And a new leader is clear about what they have to help shepherd, right? So it's just interesting that there are these two sides to the same. No, I, and I agree. I think there are powerful arguments for saying the opposite. You shouldn't condition yeah. too much the the vision of the organization exactly. or the plans for the organization because then you're constraining the new person from you know bringing their own ideas. And yeah. I, I think we were conscious of that and the board was conscious of that and made sure that, you know, what we had in place was broad agreement, agreement on the broad parameters and the broad strategic directions. But my successor came on board at a time when, you know, the, the operationalization of that strategy was still very much uh, oh, okay. in play to, to be, it was still in play. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, um, in the case of the Center for Economic and Social Rights, CESR, what do you feel, if you look back now, what made this transition, in, to your mind, successful and or challenging? Because things can ultimately be successful, but they still can have some real challenges, right? At a, at a meta level, if you will, if uh, stepping away for a moment, what made it overall successful and or challenging? Before we go into the specific advice that you have for list leaders and managers who are listening. Sure. Well, I think one thing that I've alluded to already, it was, it was a planned transition. It didn't happen in a moment of crisis or in a moment right. sudden a sudden change in my personal situation or in the organization situation. It was very, very planned. Yeah. Uh, so we had, as I say, I gave nine months notice um, that enabled us to put in place uh, a transition plan. And I'm I'm a big believer in a written transition plan. Okay. And some some people might say, oh, that just sounds so bureaucratic. But my my experience is that if you don't have that, yeah, it, why it can give rise to all sorts of misunderstandings or. Um, oh, I didn't know this was my role. You know, a, a written transition plan that describes, defines roles and responsibilities, yeah. the limits of, say, the exec, the the outgoing executive director, the limits on my role in in the recruitment, for example. Um, but that also um, has clarity of timelines, so that staff are aware. This is critically important. Staff need to be aware of what's going to happen when. Yes, opportunities they have to contribute to the process, to share ideas. Um, you know, is there an involvement in decision making or in consultation or or information sharing? All of that, I I, I think a success success factor was the dis, the degree to which we discussed those things openly, uh -huh. not just in the leadership team of staff, but with the with the broader staff team and with the board. 
and the extent to which those things were were written down. I think that's that's really important. And everybody has a common reference point to mm-hmm. understand where we are in the process. Um, I think I, I would say a third ingredient was that there was, generally speaking, a, a shared appetite to use this as an opportunity, not to see it as a crisis. Oh my God, you know, Ignacio is leaving. What? Are we, yeah. But but okay, this is an opportunity to reflect collectively on what kind of leadership do we want in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, it might not look like Ignacio. It might, might, might not. No, and often it doesn't, you know, right? And, yeah. and often it doesn't. And, you know, bear in mind that we were, this was happening against the backdrop of, you know, worldwide discussions on what leadership looks like and, 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 who you know, uh, uh, white supremacy in the nonprofit uh, sector, sector, and you know how how um, oppressive uh, and discriminatory values are are often embedded in 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 our sector, just as in any other. Um, so you know, against that backdrop, this was an opportunity to say, okay, what not not just kind of what profile do we want, you know, what personal profile, but also what models of leadership. Um, because, mm. you know, maybe a shared, a more collective leadership, or in, within within feminist movements, for example, there's um, a lot of exploration and and um, you know it, it, interesting experimentation in 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 more shared models of leadership, mm-hmm. less hierarchical models of leadership, less yeah. models of leadership that are less rooted in in very patriarchal assumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think there was a, there was a, a pretty widely shared appetite to have those conversations in the organization as well, um, which I think was also a, um, in, instrumental in its, I'm not sure if it's in, in, in its long-term success, but certainly it, it made it, uh, it made people see this was an opportunity. An opportunity well. indeed. As yeah. well as, yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So when it comes to preparing an organization for the partner departure of an executive director, um, what key strategies or tactics that you haven't, are there any other key strategies or tactics that you haven't mentioned yet? I just want to give you that opportunity before I go one level, not down, but looking at the organizational culture aspects of how it went at CSR. Mm. I think one one crucial thing was to remind ourselves that a transition is more than a recruitment, um, because that might not be self evident uh, to everybody involved. And and certainly, I would say, speaking candidly, you know, the, we we had some conversations with the board around that. You know, this is more than just you know replacing one person and putting out a job advert. This is. For the reasons I was saying, this is an opportunity yeah. to think about what kind of leadership we want in future, um, how the organization has evolved, um, you know, its current strengths and weaknesses, as opposed to the strengths and weaknesses of the organization when I when I mm-hmm. took CD. Uh, and um, so I think it was really important. I'm not sure if this is a strategy, but in a way, it's it's an approach. I think it's really important for organizations to yeah. see to see that this is a broader issue around or organizational governance and culture and yeah. not a recruitment process. Yeah, so that's an intentional approach indeed, yeah. right? Again, looking back to what you just said about it being a 
it was seized as an opportunity and in an intentional way. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about that before I ask you about some behaviors and so on? Sure. Um, I think I think being very intentional also around communication. Like we 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 actually drew up a communication strategy. And again, some people might say, "Oh, that that's." unusually bureaucratic why do you need it no i think it's highly recommended you really needed it um yeah and so our communications director was very you know sort of took the lead in in working with the board with the leadership team on you know what kinds of communications do we need to the outside world internally uh to funders to donors um, and that Can was you tell all... a little bit more about that? Can you unpack that further? So, like the outside world, which stakeholders were you? Did you not just plan for, but turned out to be particularly important to have explicit communication to, and then internally also, what kinds of communication, the the the, the avenues, the channels? Because what some people, there are big differences in what people at a at a personal level. Mm. Um, at the individual level need, right? Some people like big picture. Some people want to know, okay, what does this mean for us next week? Mm -hmm. No, we had to be very mindful and intentional of these different audiences. Um, and that includes our in, our internal constituency, if you like, the, the fam, broader family of CSR, which is the, the board, um, and we had an advisory council, which was a more honorary um, uh, governance structure made up mm. largely of people who'd formerly been on the board kind of thing. So mm. we, you know, when, when should we inform them? What kind of input do we want from them into the process? Um, then obviously partners, our key partners and allies, the organizations that we have uh, partnerships with, um, at what point do we inform them, um, letting them know early enough so that, you know, they can also play a role if necessary in spreading the word, but also not not doing it so early that um, it spreads the word that, oh, Ignacio's leaving, you know, and I'm going to be around for another six months. And do you see what I mean? That, that and you've been there for 12 years. So that's yeah, a, that's yeah, yeah. But also the, you know, that there's a, you have to calibrate the the need for um, early communication, but not so early that you sow insecurity and rumor and yeah, and that's interesting, right? That's a that's a nuance. Mm -hmm. Which is why you need a strategy. You need a timeline with these things set out. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise you're making it up as you go along. <laughs> and then you you never healthy. Yeah. Right. Uh, be, and you mentioned funders. We'll go there in a moment because that's an important one, obviously. But how about peers, different from partners, peers um, that they should they know? Were they a constituency or not so much? Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to distinguish peers from partners. Um, I mean, there were there were there were peers who who I'm very close to that have been my um, my sounding board. Um, and and the, some of those people I would have told quite early on in conflict. Okay. Um, but then other peers would have been more in the kind of partner category um, where yeah. we would tell them when it, you know, commu communicate the message about leaving when you have something else to inform them about, which is there is a process, our board is fully on board, 
um, you know, you want you you want to convey that that there is a clear strategy and process in hand. This is not chaotic. This is not, you know, uh, uh, something unexpected. But this is about uh, credibility, maintaining credibility and yeah. reputation, and so yeah. on, and a, and a sense of stability that uh, the organization will not go adrift. Yes, and that also the organ the team is not going to be so consumed with internal transition issues that it's not going to be a good partner to your organization. You know, we're still there, um, so that th those reassuring messages are really important to convey. Yeah, and, and to be able to convey reassuring messages, you need you need to communicate when you have a clear vision of what's happening. You know, um, so for that reason, the timeline was was very important, and then. Um, more broad well funders were were very very important um so i i had one-to-one -one conversations with the key funders i i um you know would i think in all cases it was like over the phone or by zoom or in person mm -hmm. uh, personalized it wasn't just like a cold uh by the way i'm leaving um because they were also very we wanted their input as well on these questions mm -hmm. what kind of leadership to, should the organization have mm -hmm. um and you know involving the board in that as well i mean the news would come from me but then i would quickly loop in my board chair or other people from the board to to be part of that conversation with funders also i see uh, that's also very very important yeah, yeah. And then internally, anything, I mean, there is, of course, there's the different layers in the organization, but um, senior team managers are often very important because middle managers, uh, yeah. CSSR is not a very big organization, but still middle managers is where all the other staff, that's how where they get their messaging and not yeah. just literal. that's also where they get their signaling, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, how, uh, anything particular on the communication side that you learned? Um, I would say with regard to the, to the managers, close and frequent communication is the key. Yeah. So we, I think we had a very healthy, um, culture of, of, uh, on the leadership team. It was, it's a small leadership team for the reasons that you've mentioned. We were not a very, it wasn't a very hierarchical organization. Um, and, uh, so we were, you know, it was important for us to, to have at least weekly conversations around the transition. The, the other thing I would say in terms of internal mechanisms, we set up a something called that we call then the transition transition team or the transition forum, I think we called it, mm -hmm. which um, three or four members of the leadership team, we were three at one point, we were four at another point, um, with the members of the executive committee of the board which was also three, three or four people. So, oh, so you mean this was basically three staff who interacted on a weekly basis with three members of the executive committee? We didn't do it weekly. I think we we had these once a month, probably. Okay, this, but they, they on a regular basis they interacted. Yeah, it was a forum that didn't exist before. Um, some organizations that forum already exists, but more most commonly, the interaction with the board or with the executive committee of the board is usually done by the executive director yeah but for the purposes of the transition because precisely because this is more than just a recruitment this is about you know making sure the organization is ready for this transition more broadly yeah. uh, we, we created this monthly forum and i I've, i think that was extremely useful 
in in um, having these conversations. Of course, you ha- you have to be careful around what's off limits in that conversation because the the leadership team and the and the outgoing executive director cannot be involved in the minutiae of the recruitment. Right. And 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 so you know we weren't meeting to discuss the details of the recruitment. There was a separate search committee for that that was led by the board. Yeah. Um, but we 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 discussed everything around the recruitment. Like how do we put in place how how do we ensure how do we put the house in order mm. so that a new executive director can hit the ground running, doesn't have to deal with um, I don't know you know messy fundraising issues or. Uh, you know, so we, we, it was really like uh, putting the house in order type. Uh, putting the house in order, yeah, well, well put. And so when I like to think about organizational culture, I like to pull it down to the level of not so much kind of principles and, and values uh, and what we believe in, but more what are the, what is the articulation in real habits, behaviors and practice? And sometimes, as you know, there's a gap between what we say we are about and what we really, how we really behave and how we also are, what we are really rewarded for. Anything on habits, behaviors and practices that struck you also in hindsight as being, because we're all human beings, right? Um, that particularly helpful or unhelpful when it came to transition. I guess that depends amongst others if there's any tensions, uh, or uncertainties, difference of opinion, I don't know, just asking. Sure. I would say participation, the the degree to which this process would be a participatory one. Um, again, there was a common commitment um, amongst staff and amongst in the in the board that this should be participatory, that we should practices in terms of um staff engagement as well as you know getting input from from outside um actors and voices of course the trick the trick is in what does that mean in practice and the the definition yeah. and the contours of participation in practice so um at the center the 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 board decided that the search committee should include two members of staff which is actually quite unusual um, in in some senses okay. uh, immediately raising the questions well does do those two staff mem- two so two of the five search committee members were members of staff um what if if you have that degree of involvement of staff which i think is really healthy you need to be crystal clear about decision making are they yeah. is is the search committee making the ultimate decision on uh, recruitment, if so, do the staff members have the same say yeah. as, as the board members, or is the search committee's decision or, or deliberations are they are they advisory to the whole board, which is which is how it ended up being at CSR. So, but I I, I think without betraying confidences, I, I'm not sure that that was crystal clear from the very beginning when the search committee was formed. So I think it's really important in these processes to define with crystal clarity what is the scope of decision-making. The scope of decision-making, right? Of the search committee and of the individual members of the search committee if they, if some of them are staff and others are board members. I think it's yeah, really, it's really interesting and, and really important because that could cause some really... Yeah. So um, as we... Um, approach um, the end of the interview 
I'm particularly interested, are there any pitfalls that you either, you, and when I say you, I mean not just you, um, Ignacio, but also the organization as a whole, or overlooked pitfalls or overlooked aspects that we haven't uh, talked about yet. And within that, I haven't heard you talk much, and maybe there wasn't much, and that could be just fine, but psychologically and emotionally, both in yourself <laughs> and in those who, the constituents, right? What did you notice? Are there pitfalls there? Are there overlooked aspects there that we should could all learn from? Um, I I think it's um, you shouldn't underestimate how much anxiety can be generated around a transition of this kind. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I perhaps did underestimate it because because in my own head, I was pretty clear that my time had come to move on. Um, and I felt good about that. And, you know, in, in, if anything, I'd, I'd stayed on a bit longer than I intended to for the reasons I mentioned. Yeah. I, I was already mentally prepared to leave. but You were ready. But the news was still a shock to, right. to stuff in, in ways that I said, but hang on, I've been around forever. It shouldn't be that much of a shock to you. But but it it was. And so, you know, I I, I would say don't underestimate the 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 um yeah, the apprehension that might set in about the future. What does this mean for me? Um, and that's why the importance of messaging, the importance of clarity about the process is is really fundamental. The importance of voice uh of, of opening forums like we had staff meetings where where people would express their um you know their questions their anything you were afraid to ask about the transition you know ask it now yeah. um wouldn't always be in a position to answer it sometimes it was for the board to answer but it was important to open that channel i should mention we actually um there is one critical thing that we haven't talked about and that's the need for external support oh um, okay yeah. And it's something, again, if I if I have a criticism about how how um how we handled it at CSR, mm-hmm. I think we underestimated the amount of external support that was needed. It's very difficult for boards, particularly um, you know, people who give up their time voluntarily, who have busy full-time jobs. Governing boards. In small nonprofits in particular, it's yeah. very difficult for them to take on the task themselves of a whole recruitment process and everything that is needed around that recruitment process. Um, we, uh, you know, I, I, I felt that we needed the support of, if not a search firm, because search firms are not right for every organization, sometimes search firm for a bigger organization, but not for a smaller one, but we need kind of external consultancy support in the end. Um, we did we did have some external consultancy support for the for the staff side of things for the for the issues i was mentioning earlier around staff participation yes. um so there was facilitative support to gather that so we had a consultancy to talk into one to one with staff members how do you feel about this what do you what are your ideas and that was that was very important i, I think to to shape um you know, as as critical input into the process, what I think was missing was a, a similar degree of support for the for the practicalities of the recruitment process to work with the search committee. I, I felt that was under resourced um, and probably um, 
<laughs> I think most people involved in the process, including the board, would probably agree in hindsight that we didn't re resource that sufficiently. So can you just unpack that for a moment, practicalities of recruitment for our listeners? What, what are you thinking of? What what? Not I, I think, I, I'm not saying at all, it doesn't make sense to me, but just unpack it, please. Practicalities, what are we talking about? For those who have not gone through this much. Right. I think having having somebody to accompany the search committee um, in you know setting a, a, a good process, um, drawing on good practices. Um, okay, for uh, for interviewing they, yeah, and pre-selection yeah. and all of and I would okay. say even even helping with the kind of project management of the process. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Board members, yeah. you know, the chair of the board or other board members who were involved in the recruitment, it's a lot to ask of them to yeah. do that themselves. And they, yeah. they you know. And, and also because we know that um, once we get to the, well, first, and this also, by the way, has diversity, equity, and inclusion aspects. So the way we source potential candidates, right, the way we scout, right, yeah. and then how we screen them, and yeah. how we interview people. So there's lots of um, uh, um, uh, ambiguity and bias in it, etc. And so uh, uh, of all kinds. Uh, and so how to structure the uh, particularly those things in a way where you have the highest quality of interview, because otherwise interviewing can be quite a crapshoot, right? That's the, I think there's plenty of research that says that interviewing is really pretty much a crapshoot unless you do it in certain uh, structured ways and even then the outcomes in terms of right fit are yeah uh, you know the records and not just in our sector that's true in the private sector too is are are mixed at, at best right yeah i, I um, agree that 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 external support is needed on the board um, this is a board-led process it has to be a board-led process but the board needs help yeah both in terms of capacity, but I, I would also argue in terms of equity, the the equity issues that you were that you were pointing to. Yeah. Uh, how, how, however, well intentioned a board is, and most human rights boards are well intentioned around questions of equity. There's good practice. There, there are there are there are good and bad practices around this. Exactly. Exactly. To have somebody who is guiding you constantly. Um, yeah. Um, is is really important it's quite important so then finally before i ask you where can people go to uh find out more about you um anything how did you and your successor uh, without you know asking to divulge things that you don't want to um how do you and your successor agree on negotiate etc to what extent you would play any continued role or engagement in any kind of capacity as you know there's a variety of views in our sector on on whether that's a good thing or not. Really, I've seen many, many different views, and it seems to be highly contextual at the very least. So how did CSR and you and your successor figure this out? That's yeah, a great question. So despite the fact that I gave nine months notice, there was still a gap between my leaving and the, my successor, uh, Meghna Abraham, um, taking on the position in, I think she joined in August and I left in March, mm. which was a shame. And, and it also goes to show how transitions, including, you know, the recruitment part of transitions often take much longer yeah. than you originally think. Um, so um, I was very, I mean, to me, it's a fundamental principle that 
as the outgoing executive director, you should not be hanging around haunting the organization. I I am very skeptical about organizations that have a former executive director and they put them on the board. I I really don't think that's good governance. Yeah, it there, seems there, there might be situations, exceptional situations where that's necessary. I know a couple of of, of organizations working in particularly hostile environments where that where that has happened and you can make the case but i i felt passionately that there's no role for me on the board mm-hmm. uh, it conditions too much the my my you know whoever comes next uh, and i also felt that and this was my my offer to to megna and and i think there was a very common understanding there mm-hmm. if you know, I'm I'm available if you want my help. Particularly, if we didn't have an overlap period, um, which no. is a shame. And I I felt it would be useful to have an overlap. So I I said, you know, I'll I'll make my myself available, but it had to be at her request. At her request. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that's that's the crucial thing. It has to be at the request of the successor or at the request of the board, if the board feels that that's necessary. But um, yeah, I, I feel just as there are just as there are limits around the outgoing ED's role in the recruitment. I mean, the out the the ED should play practically no role, I think, in the recruitment. Similarly, there's very a very limited role outside any onboarding that the new ED requests or that the board requests on the ED's behalf. Mm, got it. Got it. Okay. And, um, that point, th- th- just a, a, no- a note about what's important for boards to be mindful of. Boards very often see the recruitment ending when the person is in place. Big mistake. The transition Big also mistake, classical mistake. Yeah. The transition also includes six months, if not a year, of in- onboarding of of making sure that person is 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 doing well, has everything they need. Yeah. So the tra- transitions last at least two years. They you do. Know, I, I, in practice, if you think about you know the preparation phase, um, and then leading to the you know the the including all the the kind of onboarding and support for the new for the new person or people, if it's a yeah. co-director situation, yeah, well, that's at least two years, even in yeah. even um, agile process. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me ask the final question then. Um, where should people you've developed a new identity since then and so where should people go if they want to find out about Ignacio the consultant uh, um, where should they go so i'm working on a on a, a dazzling new website but uh, until then um the more conventional form is linkedin i would say people should look me up on linkedin i don't think there, there are many ignacio sizes s a i z or z that yeah. is, is my is my surname um i don't think there are many of us on linkedin so uh, the the one with a smiley face and human rights in the bio is <laughs> it is most likely yours <laughs> that sounds very good well Thank you, uh, Ignacio, for all your insights. I find this topic really important and uh, and you are very insightful. And thank you, listeners, for, um, for listening in to us. If you found this podcast st- uh, episode stimulating, 
then be sure to check out other episodes of my podcast, NGO Soul and Strategy, that focus uh, on leadership thinking in our sector, such as, just to name a few, um, episode 49 with Martha Holly Newsom on women top leaders in faith-based organizations. Uh, episode 65, we just had that with Adama Koulibaly, as well as um, episode 52 with John Samuel, both from, uh, from Oxfam about uh, uh, transitioning in or other aspects of leadership. And soon I will be airing uh, an episode with Sam Working, the former president and CEO of Interaction, the U.S. umbrella organization for INGOs, on life after leadership. What happens to your state of mind, your sense of identity after you leave very high profile positional power um, like that? And how do you take up that new phase in, in life? So you can find these episodes and much more on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org. That is with the number five, but also on my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my email and you will always be the first to be in the know. With that, this is Tosca and I look forward to spending time with you next time on NGO Soul and Strategy. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.